Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the fourth episode of the GC Call. This is a podcast we're bringing to you from Golf Capital, the leading alternative investment firm in emerging markets from North Africa to Southeast Asia. I'm Alvaro Abella, Managing Director in the Private Equity Team. And I'm Nabil Ismail, Executive Director also in the Private Equity Team. This show is a window into the investment process. In addition to our own expertise, you'll hear from other investors in the region, entrepreneurs, management, and advisors who participate in the overall process to demystify it together. We're talking all things legal due diligence today with Fraser Dawson, senior partner at Alshaw Goddard, a leading international law firm covering 90 countries, including local offices in Dubai, Muscat, and Doha. Frazier has been in the legal profession for more than 20 years, covering a broad range of M&A and other corporate transactions in both Europe and the Middle East. He's also a CFA charter holder, which makes him unique and specially suited to his field of expertise, which includes cross-border acquisitions. Frazier, continuing from our last episode regarding financial due diligence, how would you contextualize legal due diligence? I would say, to start with, obviously, there's a broad range of topics which can be looked at for diligence. And I think, you know, the ones that you care about and the ones that you focus on most will always depend on the asset which which you're uh, investigating. The thing about it is, is it, you know, it's a bit of an elephant test, right? Yeah. So if you're trying to describe what you're looking for, it's a bit like trying to describe an elephant. Well, it's kind of got four legs and a big trunk and it's big and it's gray. It's very hard to be definitive about what you're trying to describe, but when you see an elephant, you can point at it and say, that's an elephant. And it's a bit like that in diligence, right? You can, you know, you can ask, tell people, okay, you need to look for this, or this is kind of the sort of thing, but sometimes you just open a doc, you'll literally open a document and you'll turn to a page and you'll be like, this just looks like an issue, you know? And, and again, it's entirely contextual. So it might be, you know, the, an, an indemnity, let's, let's think about you know, oil and gas businesses, right? And you had oil and gas subcontractors, so they're providing services for the main, you know, prime national owner, yeah. yeah, whoever it is. And they would always have these huge indemnities in there, right? Which says, we hereby indemnify you major oil company for everything that we ever do ever, right? And, you know, well, that's just a huge multi-billion dollar issue just sitting there, right? And that wouldn't be relevant necessarily in a, in a company which sells widgets, but at the same time, if you you know if you're doing diligence and you start looking at all these customer complaints, if it's a widget business, you think, well, that's more of an elephant there than what we were looking for before in the in the context of the oil and gas situation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen major issues arise everywhere from material litigation, right, where you don't know what the outcome is going to be, to change of control, to licensing, to regulatory uh, anomalies, so breaches of you know financial services, regulations, et cetera, et cetera. It, it really can be anything to, to, you know, you're obviously in private equity as well. You're, you're focused a lot of the time on your management team, right? So actually, you know, having irregularities around the management team is, is also a key concern for, for PE buyers in particular. So I think it can arise pretty much in any sphere that you look at. It's just that in certain businesses, there's certain areas which are more likely to to be that smoking gun than others. So I see a lot of law firms use diligence engines, sort of like software programs that you know ingest documents and data and try to pick out you know some of those smoking guns or some of those highlighted issues. How much do you rely on that versus junior lawyers? I mean, you're a senior partner, so how much do you and how much do you train? the juniors to be able to go and 
you know, understand the, how big that elephant is. Is it a baby elephant or is it one of these great big <laughs> yeah. <laughs> massive yeah. two ton or three or four ton guys? Well, the good news is that diligence has changed a lot in my 20 years in the profession. So I think when I started off, it's fair to say that you had teams of juniors, you know, pouring through contracts and creating summaries for everything. And then you would present this 400 page behemoth report that no one ever looked at, didn't really have executive summaries. It was just like a data dump, right? Um, diligence has changed a lot now. I, I think everyone realizes there's little value in, you know, creating Bibles of just text, right? You actually need to, I think, and I think a lot of that has been learned from other professions, you know, financial banking, you know, investment banking, whatever. They realize that now we need to be able to really highlight the key issues and present them in a, in a client-friendly way. Um, likewise, you know, I don't think we have, if, if we have a thousand contracts to review change of control clauses, we're not doing that manually anymore. You know, there, there are programs out there. Every, there's several programs, you know, you can either buy them off the shelf. A lot of law firms also have their own proprietary software. We do. You can just input the documents and they can scan them and provide an output in terms of saying, right, we have identified X change of control provisions or Y assignment provisions or Z indemnities or whatever it is. And obviously, there's there still uh, is a, a need for lawyers, both in terms of understanding the issues to you know actually create the the models or whatever for for the software to use, or interpreting the software once it comes out the other end. Um, so definitely that's that's definitely being used, um, particularly in the larger scale diligences where you have, you know, thousands and thousands of contracts, which could all be on standard forms, but with tweaks here and there. Um, very much something which is which is dealt with now by software. But I think you you also need, and I don't think there's any some substitute for human human involvement in the process, right? Because there are just things which will not fall into a category, or there are things which Again, you need to understand in the broader business. So, for example, a change of control clause in a photocopier hire agreement, you don't care about because even if you trip it and they pull your photocopier from you, you'll get another one, right? But, for example, if you know you have uh, a power supply agreement, huge, a big power supply agreement for you know a big factory or something like manufacturing plant on very very uh, favorable terms and there's a change of control, and that means that you now need to pay double for your power. Imagine right now with you know electricity prices the way they are in Europe and other places, then that's a real value issue. And you also know in that case, your counterparty is, whereas the photocopier guy doesn't really care if he triggers the change of control, but the power supplier does, because they know there's a real material benefit which they can get from the change of control being triggered. When we get advice, when you, the, the um, sort of analysis that you get from legal diligence Nabil, explain a little bit like the process. What do you do with that? How do you then, from a buy side perspective, how do you then integrate that back into whether it's the negotiation, the the, the investment process, specifically if there's an auction, um, you're you know in a competitive auction with somebody else or or two other parties. I was about to ask part of that question to Fraser, which is the outcome of that legal diligence, is it to be used again to negotiate uh, financials? Because I think a lot of times 
you'd find this issue, that issue, and then you go back to the founder, you go back and be, be like, okay, yeah, well, I found these external issues. It's no longer an eight times, it's a six times. And uh, I'm gonna, you know, just use it as a negotiation tactic versus really walking away from the deal. Because at that point in time, it really depends, again, if if you've vested a year in this relationship, you have deal fatigue, do you really wanna walk away at this stage or do you wanna just structure around it? Uh, and and that's what we we tend to do. So if, if it's super material, if it's like a no-go, let's say from a licensing perspective or from uh, ownership, let's say you just can't own the asset. It's, it just doesn't work or a change of control. Like the, the company is gonna go bust because they have a massive debt on, on the company and the bank can suddenly just you know trigger it. So I, I think if it's not that, most of the time we, we tend to you know look at ways where we can structure around it. And obviously W and I would come in handy at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the issue with the W and I is as soon as you know about it. You can. You don't yeah, have coverage under W and I, right? Yeah. It's like a disclosed uh, matter. So you'd actually have to kind of, the only coverage you could get there would have to be specific for the issue and you'd have to negotiate that separately. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that because you, you guys have mentioned it uh, a couple of times. So reps and warranties. And and W and I, how does that work together? How do, how do you see that? How do you see optimizing that actually? So I mean, personally, I'm a massive fan of the product, and I think Gulf Capital may, might have done the first ever W and I policy in the region for Matito in 2013, where I was acting for the people who took out the policy, and it's come on such a massive way since then. Um, you know, it's it's really uh, uh, something which can bridge the gap between. A seller, particularly a financial seller who just says, I am selling on a you know title capacity only, I'm not providing any comfort in the underlying business. And a buyer who says, I'm not willing to buy that business unless I have some sort of contractual protection. And again, it's 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 around the unknown unknowns because anything which has been you know brought up through diligence, you should either deal with through indemnification or price adjustment or some other contractual element, but it's not that's not the purpose of W and I. W and I is there to say, okay, stuff which the latent circumstances, the stuff which no one either no one's told you about for whatever reason and they don't think it's material or it's just been, you know, missed. Although even then you might say, well, if they haven't done that, it could be fraudulent, but or the stuff which just is not known by anyone. You know, that's what W and I is for. So there's definitely a, a linkage there, and the, and the key one of the key points to W and I as well is that in order to get W and I insurance, yeah, you, you won't be able to get W and I insurance unless you've done diligence as a minimum, um, legal, financial, and if it's relevant, tax. And I think even here in this region, people want to see tax because there, you know, there is in most GCC jurisdictions, and even here there is VAT. So as well as other, let's say. Uh, potential tax elements coming correct to the different jurisdictions across the GCC, correct. or it's already here. Saudi has been living with tax for the last, you know, God knows how long. Yeah, so I think you you kind of have to look at it as uh, a you know your contractual comfort universe, okay? And some of it is covered by DD because that's what you should know and what you do know, and you've done your investigation and you've actually like you know even through the disclosure process, right? So including the warranties in an SPA getting somebody to sit down with them and seeing what they need to disclose against it. That that all comes into the disclosure part and the diligence part, that's your coverage. And for anything which it just, for whatever reason, is either not told about or not known, be covered by the WNI. I think on DD, I just want to come back with one question, which is relevant to our region. Because 
You're talking about several jurisdictions, and obviously you do rely on local council in some instances. So how do you see that local council component uh, working alongside also the tech that you talk about? Because every one of them has their own jurisdiction. Yeah. To be honest, usually whenever you do a, a multi-jurisdictional diligence, um, you still need to have one kind of point firm. So somebody who is coordinating the whole thing and also someone who is principally responsible for pulling everything together. And generally that firm will also be responsible for most of the uh most of the underlying diligence itself. So certainly in this region, um we, you know, if if we're the international council, the main council in the deal, we will try to keep as much as we can in-house to ensure consistency of approach, you know, to ensure that we're all using the same kind of metrics or whatever it is to score or judge the the relevant things we're reviewing. Um, and you use local council really on a more of a specific issue basis. So tell us about there's X contracts which are governed by Saudi law, right? We'll do the review kind of assuming just the words on the page and you provide that background around, okay, what are there, what's there to know from a Saudi law perspective that we sh wouldn't know just by reading the, the words and by applying kind of general international legal principles. So for example, are you able to limit your liability under a contract under Saudi law, or are there limitations to doing so? Is there are there legal grounds for terminating contracts which can be relied upon as well as what's written in the contract itself? And all the litigation basically yeah. will be taken yeah, over exactly. by the local council. Yeah, so employment yeah. matters, for matters. example, you'll want to know about. Right? Okay, tell us what the Saudi employment issues are. Um, so that that's generally the way it works. If if Particularly where the business, and, and this tends to be the case in this region, is you know, particularly where the businesses are kind of run fairly, you know, com on a combined basis, right? Where where you have businesses which are very much self-contained. So, you know, there's a business in Singapore and it does everything itself, and there's a business in Brazil and it does everything itself. In that case, maybe it makes more sense to actually have local council run the whole review itself, but where you have, and in this region, this is what it tends to be, where you have things which are run out of one HQ and run on the basis of, you know, one uh, one management team, you know, one, one set of standard contracts, then we would generally do it that way. Switching gears a little bit, um, looking at the differences in legal diligence and some of the aspects that you would look into when you're either buying or selling minorities versus majority in, in a company. How would you address that? And maybe Nabil also later, you can talk a little bit about some practical examples on that. The, the diligence on the asset shouldn't change too much other than obviously the, the smaller the investment, the less diligence you want to do just from a purely kind of, you know, commercial perspective. There's no point investing half a million and spending half a million on diligence, right? You have to be a bit more uh, proportionate, shall we say. So yeah, the, the the asset itself doesn't doesn't change and the level of diligence will just depend, I think, on how much you want to do. But obviously what's really key there uh, is understanding your rights as a minority. So you're coming in to a minority position, the diligence that we would focus on there almost more than anything else would be, right, okay, for that position, what what economics do you get? What voting rights do you have? What board representation do you have? What reserve matters do you have? Tell us about the dragon tag. You know, that becomes much more of an issue than where it's a hundred percent sale 
or purchase where you just say, right, well, I can kind of, that's irrelevant to me because I'm going to run the show day one. You would focus more on other things such as, you know, whether it's the control, whether it's all the rights attached to that control that you're acquiring, et cetera. Yeah. So basically moving to the documentation as opposed to like the actual legal DD. Yeah. Well, what are your rights when you're buying that position? Um, and a lot of the time when you're doing those minority deals, it, it might be as part of a consortium, for example. So the the, the principal purchaser, the you know, principal sponsor, whatever, may have actually done the diligence for you know the target asset. And really, you can rely on that. And what's key is understanding the, the, the rights and obligations that are going to apply in your minority position. Is, is that more from a VDD perspective or legal diligence? Because as a... Private equity, I'd still do the same level of diligence, again, yeah. given my size. But when I'm doing a VDD and trying to sell my asset, probably it, it, it depends, right? Yeah, on VDD, look, v, VDD is something else which has become a lot more prevalent over over my years in the profession. I think I think again, it's a good product because you kind of you you can front run the issues, so to speak. You know, if if you and also it just it just streamlines the process for buyers because you have a ready-made product to give them to their hands and say, like, you don't need to we don't need ten different advisors looking over contracts and coming up with different approaches. We'll just have one. Um so I think VDD is just more about making it a, the processes efficient to make it easier for buyers. But what's actually contained in that VDD again will depend on what it is you're selling. Are you selling 100% of the business? Are you selling a stake? And if you're selling a stake, then I think, yeah, one of the key things will be, right, okay, if I'm selling that stake, what am I giving up? Or what am I offering? I mean, there's a trade-off because the VDD is an upfront cost, mm -hmm. right? You have to engage an advisor. You have to engage also a provider of the VDD, et cetera. Those are all costs right up front. There's also a step further where you can might as well also have your SPA already. Yeah. You might have your SHA already. You might yeah. also engage with the WNI. Yeah. So it sounds like you're you're a fervent proponent of the VDD, Nabil. How do you, you know, talk a little bit about some examples where you've used it, or why are you such a? Fan? I think as golf captain, we like to innovate, right? So as we brought in the WNI, I, I wasn't <laughs> aware that we were the first one who brought it, but I think that's uh, feels great. <laughs> um, I think VDD is something that we've we've uh, talked about in the last episode with Norma. Um, financial, it makes a lot of sense because you see the dollar amount that's being saved. But when it comes to legal perspective, I think in a specific case, I remember we've used it and it helped us basically prepare the company for an IPO. And you basically are aware of a lot of these issues very, very upfront. And some of these things could be very, very basic issues, such as do I have a contract on the asset or do I have a leak, like the, the, the title deed or not? And we woke up one day realizing that, wait a second, this small plot of land was never ours and we needed to manage it. And, and the last thing you want to do is go into a process and wait for a small thing that will derail the whole transaction. So definitely a very, very, very big proponent of doing these things because a lot of times, legally, some of these matters just take a lot longer than an FDD. Yeah, I mean, I, I would... Maybe I would agree. I realize I'm conflicted. I'm I'm big enough to to say that, um, but but I I think you know VDD. It's almost you don't think about it like a like a cost, a sales cost. I almost think think of it like an investment to the process, right? Because I think it's just it's when you're when you're running these businesses, you know, people know things aren't perfect, but if there's no kind of momentum to do something about it, if it's working okay, well, we'll just 
we'll just continue as we're, we are, right? We know we need to deal with this, but maybe not right now. And it gets put into a drawer and then, you know, no one's pushing the agenda and every year you're still making the same money. No one's raising the issue. Okay, we'll keep going. Then it gets forgotten about. And then you come to do, someone says something about VDD and all of a sudden, you know, you're opening the drawers and you're, you know, you're re responding to these questions and people go, oh, actually, yeah, we, that's, it's been like five plus years. We always said we we're going to do something about it. We kind of forgot about it. We never did anything about it, but it's going to be quite awkward to try to sell the business with this still there. Well, it's an also investment in the company, in the structure itself. Like you're, it, it's an investment for the shareholders. It's not necessarily for the exiting shareholder, but more importantly for the company itself. It suddenly realized that, oh, wait a second, I didn't have all these licenses. I didn't have all these contracts in check. And it really helped upgrade, you know, and sometimes upgrade management. Yeah. And I've also seen, I mean, you, you talk, you also need, as you say, nowadays, you know, again, I remember the days of physical data rooms, right? Where you go into this big seal, you know, no windowed room and there would just be folders, right? And you weren't allowed to take cameras in there. And sometimes, I mean, when I was a, you know, a very junior lawyer, like one of my jobs is just to sit in a data room, watching people, like looking over these contracts, making sure they didn't, you know, sneak a document out or like take a photo. I mean, can you imagine, you know, like people are really proprietary much more now, even when electronic data room started, it was very rare to have print rights on documents, right? You know, people yeah, would watermarks. be watermarks. Yeah, people would be. <laughs> I think you still have. Print like, screen, watermark. print screen, print, print screen, screen yeah. you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. So it's, it's really changed, but that's kind of a bit of a digression. What I was saying was, I've definitely seen a situation before where we've done VDD and we've we've got the, the electronic data from the VDR up and running. And actually, you know, the process hasn't really gone anywhere, but people, the company has actually used that VDR as a as a resource. So they're actually saying, oh, do you know something? Now I actually have this somewhere that I can, I know everything is and I can store things there and I'm actually going to continue it for 12 months just to kind of order myself because it's it gives you that discipline. So it's almost like they adopted as part of their controls, yeah. internal controls. And certainly in this region, you still do have that where there aren't sophisticated documentation systems or, you know, whatever the databases are, they just haven't put in place and things are still done by paper copy or there's no centralized, you know, depository or whatever it is. And actually that installing that discipline is helpful from a business perspective as much as it is from a diligence perspective. And and you're right. We've come across a lot of companies where it was a very, let's call it patriarchal hierarchy, very, very top-down hierarchy. And the only guy who knew everything that was going on was the founder slash CEO. I mean, can you imagine the and key man risk? Exactly. And crazy. so if, or, or, you know, the, the finance guy knew about, you know, his very limited or her very limited um, silo, and they also had pieces of paper fl floating around. So, yeah, I mean, there, there is, I think, definitely an argument to be made for centralization of documents, maybe through the VDR. To take one final point um, before we end, uh, disclosures. That's another like big area. And is that, you know, disclosures, document made by the sellers and then, okay, checklist done, put it in the drawer. Or how do you tie in disclosures with the other subject that we talked about, reps and warranties, W&I, et cetera? And how do you avoid data dumps? Yeah. <laughs> 
and how do you <laughs> uh, and how do you use it? So both <laughs> a question to both Nabil and and Fraser. How do you use uh, you know that disclosure document in final negotiations? So it's the um, you have your diligence where you've done your investigation on the company. Then you have your reps and warranties. You never have reps in this region, but you have warranties in the SPA, and then your disclosure letters disclosing facts and circumstances which would otherwise render those warranties to be incorrect. Okay, so obviously the disclosure letter is is very important, um, and you need to make sure that you're comfortable with it before you sign your SPA, because once you signed it, and anything in there is fundamentally you're on risk for, right? It's the opposite of caveat emptor. Now it's your problem, not theirs. Um, it's something which, you know, we, as on the buy side or on the sell side, you want to make sure that people take the, the exercise very seriously and focus their minds on it and the right people are involved in doing it. Because, you know, if you're on the sell side, failing to disclose something then means that there's liability. At the same time, if you're on the buy side, well, you know, if you know they're not taking disclosure seriously, okay, great. Maybe you have a warranty claim, but you'd rather just know about it up front, right? Than than have to try to go through the courts and prove loss and all raise claims and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think it's in everyone's interest that it's done right. And, you know, sometimes I've certainly had it where clients say, "Oh, you know, we don't, we can't really be bothered," or you know, why, why, why do, are we spending all this time? And you think, well, because you want to protect yourself, but also because, you know, if if you don't do it. You could you could be on the hook for other things like you know fraud or you know non contractual assurances or whatever it is. So I think you you know breach of trust or whatever you could find non contractual claims there. Um, but the the other thing certainly on on a on the buy side or sell side, particularly a buy side, what scares me the most about disclosure is where the things which are being disclosed don't tie in with what you found out in diligence. Right, that's what really scares me because that shouldn't be true. I mean, okay, it's, sometimes it's true for certain circumstances which have, have arisen, you know, in the interim period, or there's been an honest kind of non-disclosure, or someone didn't think it was material, or something like this. We can fully understand that. But when there are new things coming out of the eleventh hour in the disclosure process, then you know that that shows a failing on some regard. It could be the d diligence itself. It could be the data that's provided in the diligence. Um, you know, at its worst, it could be deliberate non-disclosure of documents at the diligence stage, which then means your diligence report. You know, how how do you rely on that? So, I, I it's all tied together. Um, people, I, I certainly think there's no. You have to take it seriously, but you know, beware if you're if you're disclosing stuff which is new. It yeah, shouldn't I, be the case. I, I, I totally agree. I, I think basically this is. I've seen I've I've seen this movie before once or twice at least in the in the eleventh hour when someone shows up. Sometimes the founder, CEO, whoever is like working on the reps and warranties, they just don't understand what's been in the actual due diligence. And finally, when they get to read the warranties and each one of these warranties against what sort of disclosure, and then obviously as long as you know uh, knowledge qualifiers, other qualifiers uh, get uh, get uh, to to be added. This is their last shot at it, where they can just, you know, indemnify or get get themselves out of trouble. And I've seen in one specific scenario where it was either a data dump or it was against a specific, you know, disclosure. Just add five or six as as much as you can, and 
I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for the buyer to go through that you know disclosure letter because a lot of time we take it for granted we're just assuming that this disclosure letter is exactly what was presented before but many times there are very specific provisions where in one instance we found out that the company had created an, one one of the targets had created another company so that they can bid on tenders you know from two different companies so there are many of these you know you know issues that you can suddenly find out just because of a specific disclosure that they're trying to you know push it uh, in the end and it's like fraser said you know proceed at your own risk if you take the disclosure letter at face value then it is assumed that you're fine with everything and you're taking on all the risk after yes, that exactly so how do you use again that disclosure in the final moments of negotiation is it okay i can use it to walk away in some cases obviously you will need to walk away or is it ooh i didn't know about this impact that may maybe has a 10% write off in your investment assessment on on the value of the business so how do you how do you use it um maybe talk a little bit about some examples if you can fraser uh, of how you've advised clients yeah in terms of last minute negotiation I think it's it's relatively unusual for disclosures to be something which just has a very you know objective and easily identifiable financial impact to say okay you know this means that we lost x usually a lot of this a lot of what's being disclosed is there is a set of circumstances relating to x or there's a possibility of y or something along those lines and it's quite it's quite f not funny, but it's quite. Uh, it shows the different approaches between buyer and seller because the buyer will say, "Well, you've just disclosed this. Obviously, I just take it off the purchase price." The seller will say, "No, no, no, no. It's not. It's never going to be as bad as all that. I'm just telling you the worst case scenario." So a lot of times, what you will see is you will either see uh, perhaps a holdback until the thing has resolved itself. And then depending on how it's resolved, the monies will be released a certain way or whatever else, or you'll see an indemnity for the specific matter in question. So if, if the loss comes home to roost, it, it's bought, it's borne by the seller. Um, and if not, then, you know, the buyer doesn't have to worry about it kind of thing. Um, then that can lead to another set of complications, which is, well, if I'm indemnifying you for that issue, then I need to make sure that kind of I have control of the issue as the seller, right? I don't want you to have the ability to go and settle it for a million bucks and then I need to pay you a million bucks. There's like the moral hazard part of it. So that sometimes there's a little bit more involved or it can be in certain circumstances. But yeah, my, my, my experience is it's not usually something which leads to a direct impact, price impact. It tends to be something which is dealt with through another contractual mechanism. I would just add to that is it depends also on the other party if the seller is a financial institution versus the founder if it's the founder then it's basically a discussion he's a human after all so you just have to go to him and see his reaction because he's going to be your partner for the rest of the journey so if you can't trust him just walk away it's as simple as you know trusting that guy in front of you I think that's a very good note to end on could I, yeah, one, one thing I'd probably just like to say about diligence and more of a general approach to diligence. A lot of, a lot of 
people, a lot of advisors, particularly junior advisors, think that diligence, the, the reason for diligence and what they're trying to do is to find issues, right? So they want to look at a document and say, there's a typo on page five and the numbers are out by two on page 10. And, you know, there's um, the date is wrong on page 13. And, you know, what that's very easy to do as a junior. Um, and you get these huge reports then, which have all of these immaterial things which are picked up. I think as you get more senior or as you're kind of better instructed, you realize that actually diligence isn't about that. It's about kind of showing why things aren't an issue almost. It's about the mitigating factors and getting to the actual, you know, only those issues which actually are so material that there's nothing you can do about them. That is actually what diligence really should be about. It's about cutting out the background noise, you know, or realizing when there are things which you don't have to worry about because of all these other things like change of controls and photocopy or contracts doesn't matter. And actually saying, right, what is it that if you take everything else out and you look at it in the round and you understand the business, what is it that actually is an issue? And there is no way to say, we can't just ignore this. And I think that's where, you know, again, that will kind of, that shows good advisors from bad. And you're right. I'm going to say that's a much better ending to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks for share, sharing your knowledge and experience with us. It was a great, great time. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the episode of the GC Call brought to you by Golf Capital with me, Alvaro Bella and Nabil Ismail. This episode is brought to you in conjunction with Amaya Media. You can follow the show in your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Angami, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back again in a couple of weeks.